good, I think. Good morning, Emmaus Church. It is good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. I'm going to read for you the scripture for today coming out of Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. Again, that's Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. And it speaks as thus. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him alone, just as he was in the boat. There were, other, there were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. His, his say, he said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. May the Lord add a blessing to the hearing and the doing of his word. Amen. Thank you, Latoya. She's preaching next Sunday, by the way. You won't be here. It's going to be a good word. Uh, good morning. Thanks for braving the weather and joining us. Probably got some folks watching online um, in your stretchy pants. Good for you. Hey. For real, though, right after service, we've got group lunch, which if you're still thinking about it, just come if you're curious. You're not signing up for anything, right? Um, but we're going to have to turn the room over pretty quickly. And so if anybody would like to help us do that, that would be wonderful. be probably like a 20-minute transition. So uh, even if you're here, you can kind of huddle up on this side of the room while we get this side of the room ready, right? So just, I'll probably say that again, and I'm done, just to remind you. But uh, if you've got a few minutes to stick around, we would greatly appreciate the help. Got it? You dig? You dig it? I'm going to bring that phrase back. No, I'm not. I should just let it, let it go. Okay. A phobia. A phobia is defined as an irrational fear or aversion to something. It's irrational because the fear can well up even when there isn't some immediate danger present. Right? Uh, there are over 400 observed phobias. I thought I had a little fun this morning. Just getting you loosened up. I'm going to put some phobias on the screen, and I want you to guess what you think that is the fear of, okay, based on the words. You got it? Just see how well you like, did your Latin or whatever. Uh, first one, put it up on the screen. Aerophobia. This is pretty easy. Come on. Flying. Fear of flying. Well done. Give yourself a high five. Way to go. Second one. This one's going to get you, I think. You ready? Anthrophobia. Bugs? Nope. Spiders? Nope. That's arachnophobia. It's a great movie, too. Anthrophobia is the fear of flowers, believe it or not. Yeah. I thought it was like the fear of people. Anthro but there's an extra P in that one. Anthropophobia, in case you wanted to know that. I looked that up, too. This one's great. Uh, cacophobia. Anybody know what this one is? Nope. It's the fear of ugly. So I'm like, and that's pretty objective, right? Isn't like... Like, I, I, what I find ugly, you might not find ugly. Like, it's just, that's, that's a bad one, right? It's terrifying to even be, a, how about this one? I think we're all, we all have a touch of this in us. Uh, I'm going to say it wrong. Coolerophobia. What? Clowns. Yes. Fear of clowns. 
Definitely give her a high five. Last one. This is my favorite. You're not going to get it. I love it. I think I think it's uh, Junophobia. Gunophobia. Uh, it's a G. Is it, what is it? G or G? G? What do you think it is? <laughs> Fear of knees. Who said that? Somebody say that. Oh, the or, yeah, the surgeon back here. The fear, he's probably caused this in some people. No, it is. It's the fear. This is great. This is when somebody's terrified of uncovered knees, right? It's a real thing. And often, often it has to do with witnessing a major knee injury. And I'm not, this, is, this was a, like, legit medical website. This is a description. Like, like, for instance, they get, this is on the website, and they're describing it. For instance, you know, like when you're watching a gangster movie and you see somebody get their kneecaps broken, right? That might cause... Uh, the fear of knees. Interesting, right? Most of us in this room, we don't know what it's like to live with a phobia, but we all know fear, don't we? We all know, we know fear. Fear is one of the most dominant life drivers. It is. I mean, experts even say that uh, many of our earliest memories are associated with fear. If you go back and try to think, what's, what's the earliest memory you have? It more than likely has something to do with fear. I know that's true for me, I'm one of my earliest memories. It was one of my birthdays. It couldn't have been, had to, couldn't have been, uh, had to be three or four. My, my third or fourth birthday, right? My parents thought it'd be a great idea to have Big Bird come to my party. Yeah. Big fan of Sesame Street, right? And they're like, little Nikki's going to love this. They were wrong. They were so wrong. You know, Big Bird looks nice on TV. That seven-foot bird's absolutely terrifying in your living room. I mean, terrifying. I saw that prehistoric bird in my, in my living room, and I was, I was in my room. Locked myself in the room, wouldn't come out, missed my whole party, right? My Uncle Scott was the guy in the big bird costume, and he's, he still brings that up. Still reminds me. You know, I think I developed a phobia, right? I see, you know, somebody in one of those costumes, any sort of costume, mascots, and my palms start sweating. I got, like, big costume phobia. If that wasn't funny, don't laugh. But fear is something that we all know about, right? And fear isn't all bad. Like, fear is necessary. It's what helps us survive. I mean, fear alerts us to danger. It's probably kept us from doing some really dumb and destructive things. Some healthy fear is necessary, right, if we're going to make good decisions, if we're going to live life well. But when fear starts to call the shots, when it starts to boss us around, it sabotages. Am I right? And the other thing about fear that's tricky is it disguises itself as a lot of other things. You know the outrage we see a lot of right now? You know what I'm talking about? You know what's behind that, right? Fear. There's fear. And I think this is just a side. Might get a couple of those today. Sorry. But I think some of the some of the big important conversations that we're trying to have in our country right now, right? Whether it's about race, whether it's about socioeconomics, whether it's about, you know, what do you do even back when it was the pandemic, like there's so much outrage involved. I just think these conversations would go a lot better if we just started from what we're afraid of. Right? But it's kind of hard for us to admit we're afraid, isn't it? For some reason in our culture, like you just, you don't admit you're afraid. Think about being a kid, right? Everybody's jumping off the high dive and one kid won't, won't jump off. What do they say? What are you, afraid? Right? And there's something in us. It's like, I don't want to admit I'm afraid. Well, we are afraid. And phrase, afraid, fear can be a master of disguise. It's one thing to have fear. It's another thing to be controlled by it. It's another thing to, let, to allow it to call the shots. That's what Jesus is getting at in this story. In Mark chapter 4, he asked the disciples the questions, why are you so afraid? And that word afraid, that's a, it's way stronger than afraid. 
it often means like cowardly. It's somebody who is in their fear. It's somebody who's allowing fear to control their actions and their behavior. Why are you so afraid? None of us want to be controlled by fear. None of us want, it, want, us to, want to allow it to boss us around. So today, I want to have a little conversation about fear. If you're just now joining us, we're in a series called Signs and Wonders. Where we're taking a look at some of the, the miracles of Jesus. Right? We looked at a healing last week. We're going to look at you know, his ability to, to speak uh, a word and, and calm a storm. And there's so much going on in these stories. Right? We've set that up. There's what's obvious, Jesus' ability. But then there's all sorts of things going on sort of underneath the surface. On the one hand, this is about Jesus' authority and who he is and how God is working uniquely through him. But it's also a story about having a healthy relationship with fear. There's a whole lot for us. In that. So I'm going to pray one more time, and then we're going to get into it. Sound good? Yep. God, thank you so much for another chance to come together uh, to hear from your scriptures. Um, I pray that you just drag whatever needs to be confronted. Drag it up. Bring it to the front of our minds. Whatever sort of fear we're dealing with right now, whether it's uh, manifesting in the form of anxiety, worry, pride, anger, jealousy, whatever it is, just bring it to the front of our minds and then speak a word into that. Make us people who can rest in your love for us, rest in your presence. Make us people who can trust you, even in our storms. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Talking about a storm and it's raining today. How do you like that? I called that in special for you guys, little special effects. The story opens after Jesus has finished a long day of teaching on the lake. This is something he would do, right? He would stand out on a boat, and he would use the hillside along the shore. as kind of like a natural amphitheater, speak on the water, and it's almost like a natural sound system. It's one of the things that he, he did quite often. He'd been teaching all day. It becomes evening time, and he's tired. He's worn out. Of course he is. He's like, all right, guys, let's get out of here. They decide to, to sail across to the other side of the lake. It's the middle of the night, and a storm comes up. Not just any storm, a fierce squall. That's what it says. It's actually, there's a word mega in there. It's like mega storm. It needs an echo on it. Mega, mega. I mean, it's a big, big storm. Now, storms happen all the time. Sea of Galilee. It's actually more of a lake. It's not a sea. It's a lake. I've got a picture of it. Can you put that up? You see it? Everybody say, ooh. Yeah, Sea of Galilee. I've been there. It's beautiful. Been there myself. And it's notorious, even to this day, for its wild weather patterns. I mean, there's signs all over the place. There's parking lots that are a little too close to the, to the uh, water, right? And there's signs that tell you if you leave your car there and a store comes up, there's a good chance it's actually going to get washed away by the, the water will come up on the shore, and it'll even take cars away. It's nuts. It has a lot to do with kind of like the t- topography. So the shoreline of the lake is sometimes, I think, 600 feet below sea level, so it's low. Right? But it's surrounded by all these really big hills. Some of them get up to 2,000 feet above sea level. That's drastic. Right? So you've got the warm air happening around the lake, the low, the low warm air. You've got the upper high air. You know what warm air does, right? Warm air rises, cold air falls. Remember that? Right? Just wreaks havoc on the weather, weather patterns there. And then the shape of the lake doesn't help either. You know, here in South Carolina, we're used to lakes that have like all these little fingers. You know, they kind of like, it's, there's not a lot of open water. Murray's one of the few that has a bunch of open water. But the Sea of Galilee is really shaped like an oval. 
mean, the whole thing is open water. And have you ever been driving over the dam on a really windy day? Those waves can get pretty big. Imagine a whole lake like that, right, with the water just kind of going back and forth. So it was notorious, lake was notorious for its storms, right? And so one of those storms, it comes up out of nowhere, and this thing is big, throwing the boat all around. The disciples start to freak, freak out. Now, keep in mind, most of them are what? Fishermen, right? They grew up on this lake. Probably isn't their first storm. But how quickly they just sort of fall apart, right? They forget their experience. They forget their skills. And they go and wake up the itinerant preacher. What's he going to do on a boat? What's he supposed to know? Right? There's some irony here that we're meant to catch, right? The experts, the ones who are supposed to feel comfortable out on the water, can handle a storm, are freaking out, and they're going to wake up the rabbi who happens to be asleep, which I, I got to believe he's faking it. There's no way. I mean, it's loud. How loud is a storm on a boat? I've never been on one, actually. Anybody know? I'd imagine it's loud. He's soaking wet. I bet he's like doing that whole, he's got one eye open. You know what I mean? He's kind of like waiting for him. Are they going to freak out? He's like watching them, you know? He's sleeping. They go and wake him up. They don't wake him up gently like you do. Like try to wake your kids up in the morning. Good morning, honey. It's time. No. Jesus! <laughs> right? We're about to die. Don't you care? Right? They go, they go and they try to wake Jesus up. Don't you care if we drown? So Jesus gets up. He rebukes the wind. It's the same word that he uses when he casts out demons. That's interesting to me. He rebukes the storm. Right, same thing, same word that he uses whenever he's casting out some sort of unclean spirit. A lot of things you could take from that, a lot of suggestions, but I think one thing it definitely means is that this storm wasn't sent by God. It's a quick little commercial break. It's like whenever there's some sort of horrible natural disaster, some weirdo from a part of the church loves to say some really unhelpful things. You ever notice that? This is God judging sinners, right? Man, the God revealed in Jesus doesn't do that sort of thing, right? It's clear in this story, this storm isn't from God, right? There's a malevolent sort of nature to it, right? And it's just not helpful when we say stuff like that. Can I get an amen? Yeah? And so Jesus is sleeping in the stern of the boat, which is the front, and there's usually a sandbag sitting up there they use as sort of a ballast. So he's probably sleeping on this sandbag, right? And they go and wake him up. Jesus wakes up. And he speaks to the storm. And he says, quiet, be still. Now, some versions actually say, uh, more literal translation, Jesus says, Shh, shut up. That's the word he uses. Shut up. I love Mark's, Mark's version of Jesus. We're going to get into this in a couple weeks. He is not polished. All right? The other Gospels, they kind of clean Jesus up. Not in Mark. He's wild. He's wild. He's rough. I like it. All right? I'm here for it. But we're going to get into some more of that here in a couple of weeks. But he speaks. He tells the storm to be quiet. And we're told that there was a calm. And it's the same word they use to describe the storm, a mega calm. So there was a mega storm, Jesus speaks to it, and then there's a mega calm. First of all, I just, I love that there's stories like this in the Gospels. I do. I love it. Stories like this actually make it easier for me to believe the Gospels, to buy into it all. Let me tell you what I mean. The disciples that Jesus picked. The 12 that he handpicked, they were not an impressive bunch. Were they? Have you ever read it? You ever read the gospel? And they, they have a hard time getting it. He has to over-explain himself all the time to these guys. They're dull, right? He even, he even asks them, he's like, are you this dull at one point in time? They just have a hard time keeping up, right? At the same time, they're really quick to fall apart. 
As soon as things get hard, they often freak out and they leave. They run away. They're full of fear. They're not an impressive bunch. Not only is that nice because I can relate to it. You too? Yeah? I mean, these, these are the people he handpicked to start a movement. They did start a movement. These, they, changed, they changed the world, but this is how they started. And one of the reasons why this makes it believable for me is because if you were coming up with an origin story to get a new religion off the ground, this isn't how you would do it. You wouldn't include this stuff, especially not in the ancient Near East where this is coming out of. There was a big honor-shame culture. The last thing you wanted to do is make somebody important embarrassed. And so when they were writing biographies, often what they would do is they'd leave out all the embarrassment, embarrassing stuff and make the revered person look even better than they actually were. Scholars who study ancient Near Eastern texts actually call this a criteria of embarrassment. Because <laughs> they would leave the embarrassing stuff out. But not with the Gospels. They're there. And keep in mind, when the go- this Gospel's first circulating, people are starting to read it and it's getting traction. Who are the disciples by then? They're the leaders. They're sort of rock stars, right? And they don't leave this stuff out. They keep it in, which I think adds some credibility to the Gospels. It's not the kind of stuff you would include if you were making it all up, which suggests maybe they're not making it up. Maybe they're telling us how it actually happened. But Jesus asked them two questions. I think the whole story sort of pivots around these two questions. First one, why are you so afraid? Why are you so filled with fear? Why are you controlled by your fear? And do you still have no faith? Which is another way of saying, do you not trust me yet? Do you not trust me yet? These are the same questions I think Jesus asks us in the middle of our storms when we're feeling overwhelmed and swamped. Because there's more than one kind of storm, am I right? We've been there. We're overwhelmed. There's more than we can handle. And we're wondering, do you not care? Where are you? You been there? These questions are helpful for us too. Let's wrestle with them a bit. First one, why are you so afraid? There's a couple ways you can ask that. You can emphasize different parts of it, you know? Why are you so afraid? 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 Jesus seems taken back by how surprised they are at the storm. He's like, why, why are you so afraid? You've been here before. Why are you so afraid. The majority of them, like we said, were fishermen. One of them probably owned the boat they were on. They grew up on this lake. They were used to storms, but they seem almost shocked by it. Makes me wonder, did they think that having Jesus on board would keep the storms at bay? Why are you so afraid? I think one of the reasons storms can be overwhelming is because we get caught off guard by them. In our part of the world, man, we've especially, you know, the last, what, 100 years or so, we've grown up in such a, we've had comfort and excess. You know, the, the pandemic happened, but how long had it been since we'd had a pandemic? But the Spanish flu was, it was 100 years before that, right? You know, often pandemics happened before that. They were sort of a regular occurrence. So we're, we've grown accustomed to comfort, Right? And so when these things come up, it's like, whoa, there are these unexpected intrusions into our life. Most of the world and throughout human history, it was the opposite. Life was understood to be hard. It's difficult. I mean, my, my wife and I are in all, all the Yellowstone shows, you know, even like the prequel ones. You know, especially the prequel ones. You go back and you see how hard it was for people when they first came over. I mean, just getting enough food to eat during a day was difficult. It was hard. Now I can go to the store 
you know, and I can buy a whole week's worth of food in 30 minutes, right? So we're, we're just, we have grown so accustomed. We think life's supposed to be easy, and then when it's not, we're so overwhelmed by it. But the thing is, life isn't easy, is it? Not really. Life is hard. And this sounds sort of morbid and depressing, but I don't think so. I actually think it's how you'd be happier. I think it's how you can experience more joy. In fact, in the early 2000s, like right around 2007, uh, there's all this research done trying to measure the overall happiness of a country. Right? The goal was to identify the happiest country in the world right? and to try and understand where that happiness came from. It took them a few years to agree on criteria and definitions to conduct their research. But in 2007, Denmark was named the happiest country in the world. Give it up for the Danes. Right? Denmark. And every year since then, it's actually been one of the Scandinavian countries. I think a couple years ago it was Finland. But it goes back and forth. But the first year that was Denmark, and I remember watching this 60 Minutes show like episode on this because it was fascinating. It was kind of a new, new research. And, and they were interviewing this guy from Denmark about all of this, just a normal guy on the street, like, hey, did you know Denmark's the happiest country in the world, right? And he asked, the, guy, the researcher said, what do you think, you know, uh, how are you going to feel when all these Americans want to move here when they find out that, you know, Denmark is the, the happiest country in the world? And I love what he said without missing a beat. He's like, well, they'll probably be disappointed because here's what they found. You know what the secret to their happiness was? Low expectations. That was the secret of their happiness. All of them just sort of assumed, hey, life's hard. Bad things are going to happen. This isn't going to be easy. And so that's why a guy said that. I love it. He just sort of played right into it, you know. What are you going to do? And all these Americans find out this is a happen. They're going to come want to live here. He's like, well, they're going to be disappointed. I love it. So, but there is this sense of freedom we experience. When we come to terms with the fact that life is hard. That bad things are going to happen. Storms are going to come our way. It's just how it is. And when it does happen, it doesn't mean that God is mad at us or God has abandoned us. It doesn't mean that we've done something wrong. It's just par for the course. This is what it is. You know, we, we brought up a different version of this when we were in the relationship series, peopling, right? Remember the U, the U curve. It's like certain, there's a certain period every relationship's got to get through. It's just it's what it is. It's hard. It's difficult. And I think there's some more joy we can experience when we just come to terms with that. We make, we make, we make peace with it. All right? That's one angle of that question. Here's another one. So you got, why are you so afraid? But then, why are you so afraid? Why are you? They're fishermen. This is not their first storm. They've been through this before. And how quickly they abandon their knowledge their experience, their expertise when things get hard. So you've been through one of these, but you know how to handle this. Why are you so quick to fall apart? I'm actually reminded of another time on the Sea of Galilee between Jesus and the disciples, right? They're already out there. They're on the middle of the lake, and Jesus comes walking on the water to him in the middle of the night, freaks him out. That'd be so fun if you could do that, right? And, of course, Peter sees them out there, and Peter's like, I want to do that. Like, call to me. I'm going to walk on the water. And so Peter does it, right? Peter gets out of the boat. He's walking on water. It's going great. But then the wind and the waves, he starts to look at that, takes his eyes off of Jesus. And what happens? Begins to sink, right? And he cries out to Jesus, save me, rescue me. And Jesus does. Jesus reaches down and he grabs him. And Jesus says to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, it's often assumed that Peter's doubting Jesus in this moment. And this is Jesus scolding him, right? 
But you have little faith, actually sort of a nickname that Jesus has for the disciples. It's kind of endearing, little faith once is what it means. But in that moment, is Peter doubting Jesus? He's not sinking. Jesus isn't sinking. Who's sinking? Peter. Jesus is doubting, or Peter's doubting himself. He's doubting what he's capable of. How many of us struggle with that? And we can believe all sorts of great things for other people, can't we? But when it comes to us, we have a hard time returning the favor, don't we? And we can be so hard on ourselves when it comes to this. And yes, faith in Jesus is important, certainly, absolutely. But what about Jesus' faith in us? Obviously, he's got some. He left us in charge of the whole thing. He's like, go for it, and you're going to do even better than I did. That's what he said. You're going to take this farther than I did. I can't. I mean, that's unreal. That's one of the things that faith in Jesus does for me. It helps me have confidence in myself. I can have confidence in myself because Jesus has confidence in me. And I wonder how differently, y'all, how differently would we navigate some of the storms that come our way if we weren't so quick to throw in the towel and give up before we even try? I mean, how much differently would we walk through some of this stuff if we, we believed we were capable of making it through? And so we've got to be so careful about how we talk to ourselves, don't we? particularly in the middle of some sort of storm. Something I'm, I'm doing, my wife, my wife was the first one to do this to me. She asked me this question. I, I was in a storm. I was freaking out. I was saying all this stuff, and, of course, I'm sharing it with her. And she asked me a question. She said, what if your son was thinking that stuff? What would you say to him? Say that to yourself. Because it's just as true for you as it is for him. I'm just like, but that, who's that for you? Somebody you love, you care about, you would suffer for, you would sacrifice for? Who is it? Right? The next time you're in one of those places and you're overwhelmed and you're, you're, just, you're thinking all this stuff and you're feeling all sorts of ways, imagine them thinking what you're thinking, and then what would you say to them in that moment? Probably not what you're telling yourself. Am I right? So speak that to yourself because that's the same thing I think God would say to you too. Does that make sense? Why are you so afraid? You're stronger than you think. Life is hard. We're strong. <laughs> and especially when we have faith in Jesus because he is confidence in us. And I think sometimes it's good for us to look back and remember, what are some other, other storms we've been through? You've been through some, right? Look back and remember some of the stuff God has brought you through. And remember, if God brought you through that, this is just another chapter. This is another opportunity for me to learn, to grow, for something good to come out of this. But that second question is really what this story is all about. Have you no faith? Have you no faith? I want to talk about that word faith. In the Greek, it's this word pistis. You can be careful with that one. Hmm. But it's a little different from how we tend to think of faith. You know, often, nowadays, you talk about faith, and it usually means something about believing or agreeing with a bunch of, like, doctrines, a bunch of bullet points, right? Faith. It means I believe all these particulars about God. Right, the Trinity. I can explain to you substitutionary atonement. I can talk. I guess what we tend to think about think, it's like things that we sort of intellectually assent to that I understand. I've got all my ducks in a row. I got all my eyes dotted, my T's crossed. Right? It's a very intellectual thing. That is not the spirit of this word. This word often gets translated as fidelity. You know, fidelity means it's like staying true in a relationship. It's a relational word. I think a better way to understand faith is trust. Jesus is saying, do you still not trust me? you still not trust me? 
After everything we've done, after everything I've said, you don't still don't trust me. See, faith isn't about having all the answers, having it all squared away. Faith is about entrusting yourself to the care of the God revealed to us in Jesus. Now, in the Jewish mindset, God was the only one who could calm a storm. That's what they believe. God is the only one who could, who could, who could have, have control over the water, over the, the storm and the chaos of water. Think back to like the Genesis 1 creation poem. Remember that story? We spent some time in it, like a dozen times, right? In that story, God isn't making everything out of nothing. If you go back and read it, God is making everything out of what's called a watery chaos. In the Jewish consciousness, water was chaotic. It was, they weren't seafaring people. They left that to their neighbors. They were terrified of the sea. Right? And because to them, sea is chaos. You can't control it, right? It's where the monsters come from. Like for them, it was terrifying. And in their mind, God was the only one that could order that chaos, that could speak peace over the waters. And so you find this over and over again all throughout the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms. Psalm 65, verse 7, speaking about God, they say, You silence the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves. Psalm 89, verse 9, You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 107, he made the storms be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. So only God can calm the storm. And here in Mark chapter 4, Jesus can calm the storm. You see, for us, what we believe as Christians, I get how out there this is, but we believe that Jesus wasn't just some great teacher, right, who could do a few parlor tricks, (laughs) But we really believe that in some way, unique way, Jesus was a revelation of what God was actually like. He was God with skin on. Which that might be hard for you to believe. It's sometimes hard for me to believe. But you know what? I hope it's true. Man, that means that what, when we look at Jesus, we're seeing what God is like. When we watch Jesus eat with sinners, we're seeing what God is like. When we watch Jesus extend forgiveness to people who hurt him, who betray him, We're seeing what God is actually like. When we see Jesus feed hungry people, we're seeing what God is actually like. When we see him stick up for the marginalized, people don't have a voice, we're seeing what God is actually like. And so sure, it can be hard to believe, but goodness gracious, I sure hope it's true. And I think we're getting to the heart of what faith actually is then. Faith isn't understanding it, intellectually wrapping our minds around it. It's hard for me. It's hard. It's Instead, it's about entrusting yourself to God. Making your home there reminds me of what Rachel Held Evans once said. She's such a great writer. Miss her. But she said this one time, about, actually about this story. She said, when Jesus rebukes the stormy sea, when he commands its fish and walks on its waves, he's not just showing off. He's making a statement about the God who reigns over even our most visceral, primal fears. The God who, in the words of the prophet, makes a way in the sea a path in the mighty waters. The miracle of Jesus aren't magic tricks designed to all prospective converts. I love this part. They are instructions. They're challenges. They show us what to do and how to hope. So perhaps a better question than do I believe in miracles is am I acting like I do? That's faith. That's faith. Sometimes it's just I don't get it. I'm going to trust it anyway because it's worth trusting. And for me, what that comes down to is entrusting myself to the care and the resources of God. That's the picture of Jesus sleeping on the boat in the middle of a storm. (laughs) 
it's meant to be, it's a picture of what it looks like to entrust yourself to God, to make your home there. The boat could fall apart, but he'd be okay. Tomorrow, I get to fly. I get to get on an airplane. Been a while since I've done that. I love flying. I love it. I love everything about it. I like people watching in the airport. I even like the way recycled air smells. Is that weird? I just do. Like, it reminds me of, like, Campbell's vegetable soup. I know. That's <laughs> gross. But I like it. So we like it. Was, that's strange. Shouldn't have said that. I didn't mean to say that out loud. It just kind of happened. I love flying. And I love that moment when you get above the clouds. You know? Like, if you're flying during the day, when you get above the clouds, what color is the sky? Blue. Always blue. Right? Always blue. Unless it's nighttime. I get it. I'm talking about, I'm talking about the daytime. You fly into the day, you get above the clouds, the sky's blue, right? I love it. You can be on the ground, and it can be overcast, look, look like it does right now, right? Rainy, ugly, gross. You got an airplane, and you flew up. You get into those clouds eventually. That's when it gets bumpy, right? Who got pilots in the room? Isn't that where it gets bumpy? In the clouds? Yeah? Yep, James Honor, he's a pilot. I'm a pilot. I can fly. Name that movie. No, don't. Um, you get into the clouds, and it gets rocky, and it gets bumpy, but eventually what happens? You get above the clouds, and then what do you see? The sky's blue. Like right now, you know what color of sky really is? It's blue. It's blue. You know what faith is? Entrusting yourself to the presence. It's about making your home in the sky, above the clouds. Because down here, man, how often does it change? All the time, doesn't it? Especially here. One day it's cloudy, rainy, gross. Right by afternoon it can be nice. It's always constantly changing. The only constant about the weather here is it changes. Too many people make their life in that. They're just overreacting to everything that happens. Right? Their sense of self is sort of rooted in here, and it's like all about my circumstances, and we're overreacting to the challenges that come our way, to the internal anxieties that we sort of feel, and we get bounced around. But what faith is about is entrusting yourself to the care of God. It's about making your home, your life in the sky, and then seeing everything else through that. Coming to my challenges through this conviction that I'm not in it alone. There's somebody else in the boat. That he's going to give me the resources I need to not, not ignore all this stuff, but to actually deal with it, to endure it, to work through it, and maybe even have the creativity to make something good come out of it. And so I know those of us who deal with anxiety, we know that, right? Worry, fear, anxiety. And some of us are in the middle of one right now. I know how frustrating it can be when people offer you simple, shallow suggestions, right, on how to make it better. You ever get the, you just need to read your Bible more, right? You just need to pray about it. I know how frustrating that can be. Personal experience. But can I just ask you a question? Are you praying about it? Because if you're anything like me, when I'm in that place and I'm freaking out, the prayer just seems so not practical. Am I right? Maybe it's not going to fix anything. I need something practical. And we get even more urgent, and we get even more frantic. And prayer for me is about taking a second, reminding myself who's on the boat. I'm not in this alone. We're so quick to dismiss that. And I get why we want to. But listen, there's real resources there. There's somebody with us who can empower us to handle whatever's coming our way. I'm telling you, I know that on a personal level. God, at least in starting this church. Y'all know we're in over our head, right? We've been in over our head. 
And even recently, getting get to be more involved in your life and know what's going on, some of the challenges. I mean, Liberty, y'all are here. You're just in a horrible car crash what, how, uh, right, right, right before Christmas. And she's back. Check it out. Yep. But she's not the only one. There's so many of you that are going through. And sometimes I'm just like, how am I supposed to help fix all this? You know? I'm not the only one on the boat. Sometimes you have to just entrust people to God. You got to say, I'm going to do my best. We're always going to reach this point where I've, I've exhausted everything I have to offer. There's going to be a gap between what I got to offer and what's needed. You know that feeling? Parents in the room. Man, you love support your kids, but you can, can you make their decisions for them? No. And so what's funny is we think we can. We get more frantic. We mess it up even more. Sometimes you just got to say, I'm going to do everything I can, and then I'm going to trust that there's somebody else in the boat. I'm going to entrust them to the care of God. I'm going to say, help, help. And we lean on that. We rely on that. And so are you praying your way through this? I think this story is actually here. It's been used for the, by the church for so long to pray your way through it. Put yourself in the story. See yourself on that boat. What's the storm? Name it. And then go and wake Jesus up. I know the disciples would call them knuckleheads, but they're actually modeling what a healthy prayer life looks like. They go to Jesus. They go to God and say, do you not even care? That echoes most of the Psalms you can read about in the middle of the Bible. They're letting God have it. You know, you can do that. You can say that to God. Where are you? Do you not even care? Start there. And then, and then imagine Jesus speaking into it. Speak in peace. And put yourself in it. It's a gift for us. It's a resource. One last observation. All right, and then I'm going to let you get out of here. But I think this observation, it actually brings some urgency to why we need to be doing that. Not just for our own benefit. It's even bigger than that. It's even bigger than that. Some of the early church fathers actually read this story as a metaphor for the presence that Jesus desires for the church to have in the world. To be this sort of non-reactive presence in the world that can help lead through a storm and into a real time and place of peace. Actually, when I was studying the text, I was reminded of uh, Edwin, Edwin Friedman's work. Anybody heard of Edwin Friedman in here? Any uh, therapists in the room? He was a rabbi and a family therapist, uh, but he was an early expert. It's kind of a big deal. He was an early expert in the family systems theory. It's a way of sort of helping uh, families work through some really, really hard things. Um, he passed away in 1996, but 10 years after he died, his work was published in the form of a book called A Failure of Nerve. Right? And he, uh, like I said, early expert family systems. And so he took what he learned from studying families, and he began to apply it to like larger groups of people. So the synagogue for him, because he's Jewish, and the church, right? And then even a nation, a larger nation. And what he identified was five, what he called five aspects of an of a anxious culture, or five aspects of a culture that's controlled by fear. And again, it started off by him seeing this in families, seeing what happens in a family when fear starts bossing people around, when fear starts running the show. And then he stepped back and he started seeing this on a larger level in the nation, in the country. So here's the five aspects, right? And I think they play off each other. They, they, they sort of create this cycle where it just keeps revolving and rotating. Tell me, if, tell me if any of these sound familiar. The first aspect he identified is what he called reactivity. People constantly reacting to external events or internal anxiety, sort of bouncing off one another. They get caught up in what he called a feeling plasma, where people are just sort of reacting to their more base instincts, fight or flight, 
And then what we do when we're scared, right? We don't tend to think it through. We just sort of react. So it's reactivity, right? And think about this even in families. And that gives way to what he calls hurting. It's mob mentality. So you tend to group up with people who react the same way you do, right? And, they, and they, you just reinforce it all. These mob groups that we form, it's, and you see this in families, we take sides sometimes, right? They're on mom's side, they're on dad's side, or whatever it is. We see this. We, we form groups when we're afraid because I want other people who are afraid like me and feel the way that I do. So it becomes very much us versus them, which then gives way to blame displacement. Not only are we finding some comfort around people who are scared the same way we are, but then it's easy for us to say, well, it's the other group that's a problem. We've got to deal with them. And they're no longer looking in the mirror, they're just pointing a finger. Does any of this sound familiar to you? Right? That gives way to quick, quick fix mentality. Then it's just, I'm just, I don't want to feel this. Uh, this is too complicated. It's frustrating. Let's just distract ourselves. So in the family, it's like, you know what, things aren't good. Let's go on a trip. Right? Let's have a baby. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> let's buy something. You know? Like, we want quick fixes. We see this even on a larger level. Some of the ways we try to fix some of the more complicated issues in our society, they're just these quick fix mentalities so we can feel good about trying to do something and forget about it. Right? Are you, are you with me? And then the last one, what he calls poorly defined leadership. The people who actually have the authority and the influence to maybe change things, they just start becoming uh, controlled by the mob. It's just about trying to keep the peace and so it just cycles and cycles. And here's why this is important. What Friedman found, the only way to break the cycle is to introduce right into the middle of it what he calls a non-anxious presence. Somebody who can come into it, aware of what's going on, having enough compassion, but also being a bit distant from it, a little detached so that they can make some of the, the hard decisions and choices that have to happen. Here's how he described a non-anxious presence. He means, says, I mean someone who has clarity about his or own, her own life goals, and therefore someone who is less likely to become lost in the anxious emotional processes swirling about. I mean someone who can be separate while still remaining connected, and therefore can maintain a modifying, non-anxious, and sometimes challenging presence. I mean, someone who can manage his or her own reactivity to the automatic reactivity of others and therefore be able to take stands at the risk of displeasing. Sounds to me like Jesus sleeping on a boat, not being overwhelmed by the storm, but getting up and speaking a clear word to it. You know, that's what the world, our world is scared. Our part of the world is scared right now. And it's so easy to get caught up in just the reaction to it all. And so this is why it's so important for the people who are grounded. That morning time you have with God, sometimes it's not just about you and your own life. It's about our world. Because we need people. Sometimes the church is the problem. We're the instigators of fear. We love to stir it up. That's not our role. Our role is to be distant from that, detached, not uninvolved. But we don't make our home there. Our home is in the sky. And it gives us a perspective and the resources to actually enter into it all and maybe lead us to a place of peace. So that's my challenge for you all today. You know, when it comes to your own practices of grounding yourself and, and, and connecting with God, do it for you, but do it for bigger reasons than that. Because your family needs 
a non-anxious presence. The place you work needs a non-anxious presence. The world around us needs a non-anxious presence. Amen? Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much this time together for saying something to us. Lord, I pray for anybody in the room who feels like maybe you just put your finger on something. Keep them from dismissing that. Keep them from, uh, don't let them forget about it. I pray for anybody who feels caught up in that sort of cycle. They show them a way out. They remind them they don't have to be uh, a slave to their emotions, just reacting to whatever comes their way. There's a better way to live. We can actually anchor ourselves in you, and we can handle whatever comes our way. And as a church, Lord, we want to be we want to be that. We want to be a non-anxious presence to the world around us. We want to be hands-on with the pain and the hurt, but we want to do it in the right way. Not the sort of way that just adds to the hurt and the confusion, but a way that actually leads people to peace. Show us how to do that. We love you so much. We thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Church, thanks for being here. Thanks for tuning on. If you're watching online, we'd love for you to share this with your friends. Don't forget, you can contribute to what God's doing here. We love when you do that. On your way out at the giving boxes or at the link in the chat. Now we need to turn the room over for the next thing that's happening. If you got some time, we'd love for you to help. If you're here for the lunch and you're going to be checking in over here, tables will be set up over here. Uh, we'll get some food set out. I think it would be good for us to go ahead and try to get the kids a plate and fed. And then we're going to have some people out in the lobby hanging out with the kids. All right? So parents, once tables are set up, food's out, let's get the kids food first. Make sense? Church, thanks for coming. We'll see you all next week.